0: I'd like to have you turn with me now to the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Dorothy Sayer wrote of the Lord Jesus that the people who hanged Jesus, never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very effectively paired the lion, the claws of the lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting house pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Now, if you're a pious lady, remember that I'm a pale curate, and uh, that helps to put things in perspective. But I think uh, Dorothy Sayers has made a point. Um, The Lord is, as as C.S. Lewis put it, not a tame lion. John in the book of Revelation refers to the wrath of the Lamb, which to me has always been a very interesting statement, interesting metaphor. Because uh, with the weak and the struggling, those that were hurting, he was always gentle. But uh, with those that were fraudulent and hypocritical or proud or arrogant, he could be uh, relentless. But uh, I think even this a this, uh, Apparent harshness was all part of the redemptive plan that the Lord had in mind. Because by uh, by meeting hypocrisy head on, he could tear the mask away from people that were trying to pretend and expose them for what they really were so they could see themselves and change. And so when we see the Lord go on the attack this morning in this passage, it's not because he is really harsh or hard. But uh, he's redemptive and loving. And though he's not talking directly to the Pharisees in this passage, he's talking over their heads to the disciples and the crowd. Still, uh, it's for the sake of the, of the Pharisees as well as for the disciples and for us. Now let's begin reading with chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers." And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You'll recall this was a day of controversy in the Lord's life. It began with the question of his authority. He had created the disturbance in the temple, and they asked by what authority he did these things. And then there follows from that first accusation a series of attacks upon the Lord by various religious groups of that day. And in each case, the Lord meets these attacks graciously. And and though he doesn't always directly answer their questions, he does really hit at the root of the questions that they raise. And then finally, in chapter 23, the Lord himself goes on the attack. And uh, as we said, this was not because the Lord was, was cruel or hard or harsh, but simply because he wanted to expose the Pharisees for what they really were, as well as to warn the, the multitudes who stood around him of the nature of, of Pharisaism. And that's really what we must learn from this passage, what Pharisaism is and how to avoid it. I think uh, most of us that uh, have read the New Testament may come away with the erroneous impression that most people in Jesus' day were religious. No, they were not. Uh, they were basically secular, just like modern man. They were concerned about uh, making enough money to keep the wolf away from the door and doing a little bit of hunting and fishing and bar hopping, and they never darkened the door of a synagogue. They really didn't care. They had long since turned away from any sort of institutional religion. And uh, they were secular, unreligious, non-religious people. And it was this group that were attracted most by the Lord. It was this uh, class of people that that gathered around him and listened to him, because though they weren't religious, they had a great hunger for spiritual things, and the Lord saw that. And that's why he described himself as the physician who goes not to tend the well, but uh, the sick. That's where physicians ought to be, where the need is, where people are sick. And that's where the Lord spent his time. And that's why he uh, gained the reputation of being the friend of sinners, because he He wanted to be with people who had the greatest need. There were uh, religious folks in those days. There were basically three groups of people who would be considered religious by the common people. There were the Essenes. These were um, a bunch of folks who had dropped out of the religious community in Jerusalem and had gone off to the Dead Sea to live. And they founded a little Bible city along the shores of of uh, the Dead Sea. These were the people from whom we uh, got the Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, they were basically in, in reaction against the temple and the Jews and institutional religion and people had pretty much written them off. They didn't have much effect on the religious world of their times. And then there were the Sadducees whom we described as, as very much like modern day liberal theologians. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't accept the authority of the Scriptures, except some of Moses' writings. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They would be very much like modern-day Unitarians, I would think. And most of the nobility in Jerusalem, if they were religious at all, were Sadducees. And then there were the Pharisees, whom most of us know from reading the Gospels and the book of Acts. These were the people who were very much in opposition to the Lord. But uh, strangely enough, these were the people who... Essentially, had it straight. They were orthodox in the in the classical sense of the word. They had it straight. They believed the scriptures, and uh, their scribes, their scholars, were the Bible teachers of that day. They believed in biblical authority, and uh, they believed in being righteous. As a matter of fact, their name, Pharisee, is based on an Aramaic term that means divided. That is, they had separated themselves from the rest of uh, of the of the Multitude, the crowd that had no interest in personal righteousness, they they believed. And these were the great unwashed masses out here, and they were those who sought for personal righteousness. They were good people. They believed the Scriptures. They believed in supernatural phenomena. They believed in the resurrection and in angels and in demons. But uh, what the Lord saw is that they were hypocrites. And it's for that that uh, they're censured. They had the truth right, but uh, their actions were not consonant with the truth. They didn't practice As Bob Dylan puts it, they were masters of the book and masters of the proposition, but uh, they had never really permitted the book to master them. And their their hypocrisy had turned off an entire generation of people. The common, non-religious people of that day, those that didn't go to the synagogue, really had been turned away from these places of worship by the activity of, of these men. Because they looked at them and and they saw, though they seemed to have it straight and they said the right things, their actions were not uh, not parallel to what they what they said. They didn't practice what they preached. A number of years ago, when I was working with students, I. Uh, read an open letter in a daily newspaper on a campus written by a a radical student who was speaking out against the over-30 generation of of his time. And uh, his remarks were so insightful, I jotted them down, and I've kept them in my file ever since. I don't advocate uh, the spirit in which these words are spoken, But uh, he says something about what hypocrisy does to us and what it does to others. Look at you, he writes, blowing up whole countries for the sake of some ideology that you don't live up to anyway. Look at you haranguing a whole generation of kids into getting a charge account so they can buy your junk. Who's a junkie? Look at you needing a couple of stiff drinks before you have the nerve to talk to another human being. Look at you making it with your neighbor's wife on the sly just to prove that you're still alive. Look at you, hooked on your cafeteria of drugs and making up dirty names for everyone who isn't in your bag and fouling up the land and water and air for profit and calling this nowhere scene the great society. Come on, man. you got to be kidding. Now, again, I don't advocate that as a as an ideology or a way of life. I'm simply saying that there was a generation of young men and women who were turned off because of the hypocrisy of the generation that preceded them. And I think the same thing is true by and large today of the religious community because of our hypocrisy. In some sense, many people are are kept from getting a clear view of what the gospel is and what the Lord is like and what the Lord can do in their lives. And therefore, we need to take seriously what the Lord is saying to us about hypocrisy. Now the Lord says of the Pharisees here that uh, they are seated, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. The chair of Moses is an idiom for a place of authority. Uh, We have the same idiom today when we talk about a chair of literature on a university campus. It's a position from which someone can teach with authority. And Jesus says, the Pharisees, these hypocrites, have seated themselves in Moses' chair. In other words, they have authority. And whatever they say, he says, hear and do, but don't do what they do. In other words, to the extent that they teach the scriptures and they align themselves with the truth as God has revealed it then we should listen to them but uh, don't uh, don't practice the lifestyle that they follow don't be like them in their actions there is therefore a sense in which all of us can learn from people whose lives are not completely squared away i uh, tend to be uh sort of a cynic and it's easy for me to be turned off by someone who's whose life doesn't seem to uh, be an expression of what they believe. And yet, the Lord checks that attitude. He says, that's wrong. To the extent that people are teaching the Word, we need to listen to them. But uh, the Lord's concern here is with their teaching, because they're fakers. And uh, we should not do what they do, though we should do what they teach us. Now, we need to understand something of the nature of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is fakery, it's phoniness, it's it's saying one thing and doing something else. And it's that sort of thing that the Lord is concerned with here. It's not hypocrisy to know the truth and not to do it. That's reality. (laughs) And if you look back over this past week and there are areas of your life where you know you you've uh, disregarded the truth or some habit has controlled you again and you've acted contrary to the Word, don't think of yourself as a hypocrite. Hypocrisy would be then to try to cover that up and act as though you're doing well and, and you're obedient to the Lord even though you know you're not. It's not hypocrisy to know the truth and not to do it. I say that because I hear people say from time to time, that they feel like a hypocrite in coming to church because uh, some habit is controlling them, or there's some sin that continues to to dominate their lives, or they fall back into some old practice, and, and they say they don't they don't want to go to church because they feel uncomfortable, they feel hypocritical. But it's not hypocritical to go to church if you fail. As a matter of fact, that's where we ought to be. We're not a company of people who who have it made. We're a company of people who can't make it apart from the Lord and apart from each other. The very place we ought to be is right here where we can support each other and encourage each other and minister to each other. Lay hold afresh of the Lord and, and his, his resources and go out of your understanding that He's adequate to enable us to try again to be what God has called us to be. Now the Lord says in verse 4 that the Pharisees tied up heavy loads and they placed them on men's shoulders, but they themselves were unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. As we've seen in our past studies, the Pharisees had a tendency to elaborate the law and to produce a command for each uh, situation. Every moral dilemma demanded a, a specific a command, an action, a practice, and they had six hundred and thirteen laws that uh, they had deduced from from the Old Testament. but uh, the situation didn't it didn't work. That way of handling moral issues never works because in the first place we can't uh, we can't remember the proper regulation for the specific occasion. And secondly, we know that just law keeping is impossible. If uh, re- we reduce our relationship to the Lord to a matter of law-keeping, then it becomes deadening and uh, kills our nerve, demotivates us. Simply a matter of keeping rules rather than walking along with the Lord in fellowship with Him and relying upon His power. The approach of Scripture is to give broad, general commands and then teach us how to work out the implications of those commands as we walk along with, with the Lord. Therefore, when we try to reduce everything to just finding the right principle or the right command and applying it to specific situations, we discover it just doesn't work. But uh, it has another effect upon us. It makes us hard on others. We begin to, if we think of, the Christian life in terms of keeping rules, then we start laying the law on others and placing impossible burdens and and expectations, unrealistic expectations upon others. And when they don't measure up, then we judge them and criticize them instead of helping. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They had reduced all of life to rules. And they placed these impossible demands upon people. And then they refused to even... Lift the burden with a with a finger, as Jesus puts it. They didn't do anything redemptive and helpful. They simply imposed further burdens upon people. But, uh, you see, we need to see, first of all, how the Lord deals with us. He doesn't accept us on the basis of keeping rules. He loves us just the way we are. And uh, He forgives us. And once we see that, how the Lord deals with us in grace, then we begin to become more gracious with others. Our expectations are not unrealistic. We realize that we fail as well. You see, if the Christian life is simply a matter of keeping rules, then we become hard and rigid and legalistic in our approach. But if we understand that it's lived by grace, that there is a forgiving Lord, and that everything we do grows out of our relationship with Him and our power for being Godly men and women is derived from our walk with Him. Then we become so much softer and tender toward other people, so much more gentle, loving, gracious, and forgiving. And instead of imposing burdens on others, we begin to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When someone fails, we can say, I understand. I may not fail in that area, but I failed last night in another area. How can I help you? Let's pray together. Let's uh, look together to the Lord for His forgiveness and His strength to go on in in obedience. You see, it completely changes our attitude toward one another. Someone has said that uh, Christians are the only ones who trample on their uh, fellow uh, soldiers on the way into battle. When a soldier falls, we don't step on him. We pick him up and we help him. And that's what it means to bear one another's burdens. To deal with one another in in forgiveness and in grace. Understanding that we ourselves are in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And then Jesus says in verse 5, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. The uh, phylacteries were small leather uh, cases, little pouches that the Jews of Jesus' day wore on their forehead and on their upper left arm, near their heart. It was a rather too literal application of the command in Scripture to write the word upon your head and upon your heart. And uh, they took that very literally, and they wrote the Scripture on little pieces of papyrus and rolled it up, and they placed it in leather pouches on their forehead, representing the thoughts and all the, on the upper arm representing the, the heart. And uh, if you go to Israel today, you'll see Hasidic Jews and members of other Orthodox sects still carry out that practice. And then the tassels were uh, enjoined by the Old Testament as aids to memory. They had tassels on the bottom of their garments, and as they walked, they, the tassels would remind them of the law. They were aids to memory. And as such, they're very helpful. I do that sort of thing. Put things around the house so I'll remember to do something or remember to act in a certain way. That sort of thing is useful. It's not wrong, and I don't even think the phylacteries as such were wrong. The point that Jesus is making is not that these little leather pouches were wrong, but that they broadened the borders of them and they lengthened their tassels in order to be noticed by men. That was the problem. They wanted people to see how pious they were. And we do the same sort of thing. Unfortunately, when we pray in public, not in a way that, uh, that's designed to bear our heart before the Lord, but simply to impress others with our theological knowledge or our spiritual maturity. Or we cite our experience in such a way that we, uh, we play, Can you top this? And we've had an experience that's greater than anyone else's experience, or we talk about our witnessing experiences, or whatever it may be, in such a way that we give the impression that that we've arrived at a certain level of, of piety. Or we use cliches uh, such as praise the Lord, or the Lord willing, over and over again. And they've long since uh, ceased to have any meaning for us, but we use them simply because of the impression that we want to leave behind or we when we speak about spiritual things we use a, a particular kind of voice a low solemn voice or a holy whine in order to talk about about spiritual things and uh, it's done so people will see us and notice us and feel that we've arrived at a certain level of maturity and it's not real it's phony it's unnatural and then Jesus says in verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They wanted to have special privileges accorded to them because they were the clergy. They were the spiritual leaders of that day. And uh, he says they like to be uh, introduced at banquets and they want the place of honor. They want to be known and recognized. And they want their achievements to be uh to be recognized and spoken of as spiritually mature people. Um, whenever I read this passage, I always think of the custom that we have of introducing distinguished Christians at banquets in such a way that uh we give them honor for their achievements, almost as though the man himself is the one who did it rather than the Lord in him. I uh, appreciated Jim Dickey's introduction of Ray Stedman at the men's uh, retreat. Jim has has been a ring announcer, as you know, for boxing matches here in Boise for a number of years. And when he introduced Ray, he introduced him as Ray Stedman, weighing uh, 185 pounds and wearing red shorts, and that was Ray's introduction. (laughs) And I thought that was very appropriate. I heard Ray introduce someone once as... uh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, about whom President Carter once said, Who? <clears throat> and he uh, once introduced me as Dave Roper, who holds his audience right in the palm of his hands, and that also gives you some idea of the size of group he's used to speaking to. <laughs> and somehow that, that seems to me to be so much more appropriate than the kind of thing that we normally do. The Lord says they love that sort of thing. They want to be recognized and they want to be seen. They want the place of honor. And then they, they like respectful greetings in the market places and being called by men rabbi. The word rabbi simply means my high one. It's the word for a teacher in, in Israel. But He says, don't be called rabbi for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And I think this is something we need to take very seriously. Titles separate us from one another. Jesus says we're brothers. That's the unique relationship that we share to one another. We're brothers. And uh, we're servants of one another. Why, therefore, do we use titles that separate us, that uh, put one person on a, in a higher place, put someone on a pedestal, and remove them from us? Because Jesus says it's we're, we're like a family, and we ought to see each other, not as uh, positioned and, and given certain privileges and rank. The church is not a hierarchy. It's a family. It's like a big, happy family, Jesus says. And uh, we're brothers, so don't use titles that that separate us from one another. Now, some titles are unavoidable. Jesus Himself and the apostles used some of the titles that uh, that He warns us against here. Stephen, in Acts seven, when he stands before the Sanhedrin, refers to these men as fathers, because it would have been crude and and boorish to do otherwise. And there are times that that we have to use these terms. But Jesus' point is, don't let it go to your head. Don't uh, let the title that someone bears cause that person to uh, have, a, in your eyes, a unique position in the family. And don't let the titles that people apply to you separate you from one another. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard my story of the man who called the church office one day and uh, asked where the head hog at the trough was. And the secretary says, well, we don't really refer to the right Reverend Dr. Smith in that in those terms. And he said, well, I don't care what you call him, but I have a $10,000 check here that I want to apply to your building program, and I need to talk to the head hog. And she says, oh, just a minute. I think I see that big pig coming down the hall now. <laughs> and I think that puts things in, in perspective. One of the titles that I think uh, we ought to discard from our vocabulary is reverend. Reverend means awesome, full of awe, worthy of honor and respect. And if that title doesn't separate us from one another, I don't know what does. Jesus says don't use titles in such a way that they cause a division within the body of Christ. Because you're a you're a family. You have one leader. You have one Father. And the perspective that you ought to maintain is that you're all brothers and servants of one another. You ought to see one another as brothers and see yourself as a servant. And that, Jesus says, is the mark of reality. If we've got it straight, if our life accords with the truth and we're living openly and honestly before others, then the mark of our life as a body will be that we see each other as brothers. Not a hierarchy. But a family. And we'll serve one another. And it's the Lord who sets the pace. He said, I am come not to be ministered to, but to minister. And to give his life, give my life a ransom for sin. He just, he came to serve, and it's revealed in his actions. On the last night uh, of his life, just hours before he went to the cross, he and the disciples gathered in the upper room. And uh, it was the custom in those days for a servant to wash feet. And uh, apparently there was no servant there, and none of the other disciples wanted to carry out that task. And so the Lord stripped off his clothes, got on his knees, and washed their feet. And then he proceeds to encourage them about his departure. Now, we would think uh, if anyone needed to be encouraged, it was the Lord. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. He was their leader. They ought to encourage him. And he turns it around and he encourages them and he washes their feet and he provides for their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And Jesus says, that's the way it has to be. This isn't a hierarchy. It's a family. We're brothers. And you know, we need to serve one another. And so if you are here this morning and you feel unnoticed, perhaps uh, in months or years past you had a place, a responsible position here within our body and for one reason or another you're not any longer engaged in that task and you're beginning to feel that you've been passed over, then uh, you need to recognize that you have a place right where you are to begin serving. The people around you, the people that have needs closest to you. I uh, Some time ago I ran across this little poem that I thought expressed this very well. Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. Then he pointed me out a tiny spot and said, tend that for me. I answered quickly, Oh no, not that, why no one would ever see, no matter how well my work was done, not that little place for me. And the word he spoke, it was not stern, he answered me tenderly, Ah, little one, search that heart of thine. Are you working for them or for me? Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. And you see, that's that's the pattern that our Lord laid down for us. He didn't uh, hang up a big shingle on the front of his uh, residence and say, Messiah, here, and, and uh, start attracting attention to himself. Uh, as Isaiah puts it, he didn't cry aloud in the streets. He didn't run roughshod over people. He wasn't noisy. He just quietly went about serving the needs of people around him. And that's the pattern of our life as well. Or perhaps you're a young man or woman here and, and you, you're sort of stressed by the inconsistencies you see in your parents and they're asking you to do things that, that you don't think are right. Well, the place to begin to serve is right there in your home. Did it ever occur to you that if any young man or woman ever knew more than its parent, than his parents, it was the Lord? And yet he submitted to them. He did what they asked, and he served them in practical, helpful ways. We don't know what he did, but we know that when he was baptized at 30 years of age, the father could say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He did it right. He got it straight. He didn't preach any messages, as far as we know. He didn't do any miracles. He just quietly served in his home, did what he was asked to do, submitted to his parents. Or perhaps you've been set aside by illness or a young child in the family and you're not able to do some of the things that you've been longing to do, then you can begin right where you are in your home, serving your children and serving your husband and asking God to bring people into your life that you can minister to, a brother or sister who, who's hurting, who has a need. And uh, you don't have to have it all together. Uh, we're all uh, under construction we all we all struggle uh we have to realize that we're all in this together and everyone has needs so uh, if you're not right where you want to be spiritually don't let that intimidate you because you still can be used what turns people off is not our failure but our hypocrisy it's the phoniness in our lives the uh, sham the make believe the veils the attempt to try to hide and and be something that we're not when we're real and genuine people are drawn to us when i was at the first some years ago and uh, a woman came up after one of the meetings and she's she's the wife of a prominent businessman in in the pacific northwest she speaks all over that area with christian women's club clubs and, uh, she told me about an experience she had had that just the week before. She got into a fight with her husband. And, uh, she really got angry. In fact, uh, as he walked out the door, she yelled at him and he just ignored her and got in his car and it made her so mad she went in the kitchen and she started slamming cabinets. She started, went into the kitchen and she slammed every cabinet in the kitchen and was just swearing at the top of her lungs the whole time she was doing it. Just irate. And as she walked by the screen door, she looked out. It was a summer day, and the door was open. And there stood her neighbor with a cup of sugar in her hand, her non-Christian neighbor. And she had been sharing the gospel with this woman for uh, for some time, and now she was returning a cup of sugar that that she had borrowed. Now you or I would probably try to fake it some way, you know, and pretend it was the radio that was on, or. <clears throat> but. Uh, she, she was so chagrined, and she looked at her neighbor, and she just laughed. She said, come on in. She said, what you have seen is a demonstration of what I am like apart from Jesus Christ. She said, when I leave him out of my life, that's the kind of person I become. And uh, that's why I need a Lord, because I, I don't have the strength to put up with my husband apart from, from the Lord Jesus. And she led her neighbor to Christ over a cup of coffee. Now you see, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. The world today is looking for real people, <laughs> ordinary people, who, who do extraordinary things because of God in them. And I think what we must learn from this passage is to avoid the fakery and the sham that so easily comes to us. And let's just be real and natural and down to earth, filled with, with the Lord and dwelt by him, counting upon him, but just ourselves. The world's really looking for that today, and I think that's going to speak louder to the world than anything we can be. The Lord's not really impressed by razzle-dazzle, but they're impressed by lives that are real and genuine. And that's what God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, all of us... uh, struggle with, fight the tendency to let our guard down and let people see us as we really are. And uh, we know our that that tendency is there. It's very real. And We ask you to make us natural. Just be ourselves. And uh, be what we are because of you and your power. Be willing to admit that we're very much in need of your grace and forgiveness and your strength. Teach us to be tender and forgiving toward people that fail. Deliver us from our critical, judgmental spirit toward those who don't measure up to our standards. Remind us, Lord, of how how far short we fall from your standards. Give us a, a love for each other and a servant's heart, an attitude to reach out to people in need and bear one another's burdens and look for people that are hurting and needy and And serve them in practical, concrete ways. And make of us a body of believers who go through the world as a loving family and attract others into this family because of their longing for that sort of, that sort of acceptance. We thank you that you're the one who makes it all possible. In Jesus' name, Amen.